In Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, we meet a man haunted by his past deeds. Victor Frankenstein creates a monster, and as soon as he creates him, he shrinks back in horror and flees. For stretches of his life, he sees nothing of this monster, and yet time and time again, he shows back up. For the monster stalks him, torments him. The monster destroys his life piece by piece, taking the very ones that Victor loves. And in this deranged state of unrest and unquiet, Victor swings back and forth from declaring his own guilt and responsibility for the death of his loved ones to the other somewhat more confusing assertion. That he is innocent and a victim of this monster's madness. These are the incoherent ravings of a man tormented in his conscience. A man who knows no peace because of what he has done. We have all done wrong. We've all done wrong that I'm sure we would not prefer to have publicized in the heavens. Even the inner life of man is a constant source of blushing for us, isn't it? As thoughts and feelings and the actions which proceed from that reasonably cause us to hang our head and wonder how could such a thing come from me? How could such a dark thought take its origin from me (laughs) and left to ourselves these truths the heinousness of our hearts the heinousness of our works would drive us to despair and continue to haunt us in a sort of deranged madness not unlike victor frankenstein who spends his whole life under the shadow of his past as it were So when the Lord Jesus Christ shows up, indeed, when his very birth is announced from heaven as bringing peace. When the Lord Jesus Christ raises from the dead and he says, peace be with you. When Isaiah sets forth, even of old, saying that somehow this one would come and purchase at great cost peace. It comes like a burst of light. To a haunted soul. Like a breath of fresh air. To a man trapped in a desert. We come to the second blessing beside. Peace of conscience. And we take for our text this evening. This classic text from Romans 5. Which states so simply. And so beautifully. Since we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. 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 Has been accomplished. So let's pose several questions to this text. First. What is peace with God? We use the term peace in all sorts of different ways. Don't we? We speak of the peace and the prosperity of a land or a nation. We speak of families at peace. Children playing or sleeping peacefully. 
Scripture even uses a broader sense of this word when it exhorts us to live at peace with all men as much as it depends upon you. By and large, we mean by this general usage, the absence of strife, the absence of hostility. And that's certainly a big part of what Paul means here. Because what's the opposite of peace? War. It's not just Tolstoy who says it's Ecclesiastes. There's a time for peace and a time for war. And that's the terrible portrait that Paul opens with in Romans, isn't it? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Heaven is at war. Now, if one nation declares war against another, it's no guarantee that it's a just war. Or that all the citizens in the nations against which we've declared war are to blame. But that's not the case, according to Paul and heaven's war. Paul's picture is very different. God's wrath, the wrath of heaven, is rightly and justly revealed the entire, against the entire world of men. For all have set themselves against God in unrighteousness. There's no nation where some little pocket of goodness exists. Paul gives the devastating report from the ground. None seek after God. There is no one righteous, no not one. None do good. And so heaven's war against the world of men is a just and holy war. We hear of the war of heaven against man and we think that's not fair. How cruel. How wrong. It's because we're biased. <laughs> it's because we're the offending party. The fact of the matter is closer to declaring war on Mordor and the orcs than it is on men. When we consider the sobering fact that we should have been a race of men that lived and looked as wonderful as the Lord Jesus Christ, the true man, we're left to conclude that indeed we are closer to monsters than men, closer to orcs than humans. And God is just to declare this holy war. But praise His name, that's only a part of the story. It should have been the whole story. That should have been the only layer to this narrative, but it's not. Yet it is an indispensable part of the story. Because it is only to the degree that that layer of the story that is felt is felt is the degree to which the glorious announcement of peace, the terms on which this peace has set forth in the Lord Jesus Christ, will burst forth like that light upon a haunted soul. When Paul announces that there is now peace between God and some men, heaven and earth, this is an astonishing relief. And what is more glorious still, peace goes beyond just a bare cessation of hostility. The peace which God has brokered is no tentative truce. Two nations might call a ceasefire, but you get the sense that if circumstances change, they're going to be right back at their old hostilities. Not so for the peace that God establishes, for it is founded upon something sure and irrevocable. There's a positive blessing in this peace as well. 
It is the establishment of a new and permanent state, not of neutrality, but of favor, of blessing, of light. You hear that blessing, that positive aspect of peace from that ancient benediction, number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It sits at that climactic portion, but all of the blessings enumerated there are aspects of peace, light, a favorable countenance, grace established. It's not just the removal of the dark aspect of the heavens. It is the filling of the heavens with light. That heavenly host declaring, hark. <laughs> it's not just that the storm has passed, but that the glories of the day have broken forth. To enjoy peace with God, to possess peace with God, means that you are no longer an object of his displeasure and wrath, but rather are established as an object of his indescribable favor. The blessings of heaven directed towards a former enemy. God's countenance towards us has gone from darkest night to glorious day. From the condemnation of a judge to the smiling face of a heavenly father. And we can pause here and insist on what scripture insists on. Make no mistake, God's faith face is set in wrath against all unrighteousness of man. Against all sinners who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not by downplaying the terrors of such a circumstance that the soul has hope. But rather it's by being shook by this terrible condition that indeed one is an object of wrath outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. One is the object of God's righteous judgment and fury on account of sin. It's until that is felt that the restoration of the light of God's faith face will mean next to nothing. And we can go one step further. To the degree to which this terrifying truth is downplayed is the degree to which the cross of Jesus Christ is despised. For Paul says that God put Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. If the case was not so dire, the cure would not have needed to be so costly. How has wrath been justly removed? How has favor been established in righteousness? It is not because God scoured the earth and found a people who were somehow worthy of such a blessing, somehow spotless and blameless. No, it's because Jesus Christ willingly became our propitiation, removing wrath and establishing favor, blessedness, peace. And that brings us to the next question. Who has this peace and how? Paul tells us plainly. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It can't be any plainer. It's so clear. 
so lucid. Who possesses peace with God? Who has been brought into the state of peace with heaven? It is those who have been justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here the ultimate basis upon which peace with God can be established. We see why it rests upon surer ground than some tentative truce between nations. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased it at the cost of his blood. He has purchased it by his spotless and righteous life. How can Paul, persecutor of the church... How can Peter, thrice denier of Christ? How can Augustine, pursuer of fleshly appetites with no concern for God? How can you, with your sin record, with the wrong that you have done, shameful in and of itself, offenses against heaven, harm against your fellow man, how can I... With a past littered with ingratitude and sin and harm. How can I have the audacity to claim that I have peace with the Holy God? By uttering our yes and amen to the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ as an atonement for sinners. That's what we read in Isaiah 53 in the words of comfort. He was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. That brought us peace. With his wounds. We are healed. Ours. Ours was the crime. Ours. Ours was the blame. His was the punishment. Ours is the blessing. His was the stripes. Ours is the peace. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Peace has been established because peace has been purchased. Not by your works. Not by mine. Not by your sincerity, not by mine, but by the precious blood of the spotless Lamb. Blessed be His name forever. Amen. Consider the wonders of this God. His wrath revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of man. And yet, in this way, God loved the wicked world. He gave His only begotten Son. Such that whosoever believes in him does not perish, but has everlasting life. I think that's two John 3.16 quotes in one day. I think I quoted that this morning as well. It's a beautiful text, quoted every day. It's as if Achilles went out, not to kill Hector, but to lay down his life for Hector and Troy, and to see the Greeks out of their shores. It's those who look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ who have entered into this state of peace. Do any other have this peace? Does anyone else have this peace except for those with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? No. 
That is the plain testimony of Scripture. They may enjoy many of God's common grace, benefits and blessings, but not this peace. The wicked do not have it. Isaiah writes plainly, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The wicked may enjoy quiet. Those outside of Christ may enjoy prosperity. But they are not to understand these things to be peace with God. All of the patience and all of the kindness that they enjoy is meant to lead them to repentance. Meant to lead them to lay down their arms against heaven. The wicked do not have peace. The self-righteous do not have peace. They are like the Pharisee of Luke 18. They extol their obedience and console themselves with the wickedness of others. Isn't that what he prayed? I thank God that I am not like those sinners. I do this, I do that, they do this, they do that. Praise be your name. What was the tax collector's prayer? It was so simple, so beautiful. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. One of them went home justified. Thomas Watson writes, Some go to fetch their peace from their own righteousness, not Christ's. They go for peace to their holy life, not Christ's holy death. If conscience be troubled, they strive to quiet it by their duties. This is not the right way to peace. Duties must not be neither neglected nor idolized. Look only to the blood of sprinkling. But this raises a further question. Can one be in a state of peace and not have full enjoyment of that peace? Another way of asking this, do all the justified always live in the enjoyment of their peace with God, purchased by Christ and irrevocably established by his sufficiency? The answer is no. And if this, we establish two different aspects of this peace. There is peace established. And there is peace enjoyed. That's how John Flavel distinguishes it. There's peace above and there's peace within. That's how Thomas Watson distinguishes it. Or as Charles Hodge and John Murray suggest, there is objective peace and subjective peace. They're all making the same distinctions. For the justified, there is an uninterrupted state of peace established and maintained by the mediator, Jesus Christ, writ in his blood. In that he has exhausted the cup of God's wrath and put it away forever. And from this irrevocable state flows the experience of peace in our consciousness. But because of the nature of our consciousness, we are sometimes more, sometimes less, actively aware and living in the enjoyment of this peace. You can imagine a, a beautiful sunny day with one of those crisp blue skies and a, flu, a few fluffy clouds and a sun casting a brilliance over the whole aspect. And you can imagine a foggy mirror beneath it. <laughs> If you look in the mirror, the day may appear overcast and dark. Not because of the day's aspect, but because of the mirrors. J. 
John Murray writes, peace of heart and peace of mind proceeds from peace with God as the reflection in our consciousness of the relation established by justification. So we make a distinction. So when Paul writes in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He's not talking about the objective state of peace there. He's not talking about that state which has been established through Jesus Christ as our propitiation. Rather, he is praying for the church's subjective enjoyment of God's peace. For the mirror of our souls to be filled with the light of God's countenance upon us. He seems to mean something very similar when he writes in Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. He's exhorting the church, again, to make this peace, the peace which Christ alone gives, the peace which Christ alone has purchased, the peace which Christ alone can apply, to make that the governing principle of the soul. All of which comes together in a host of other texts to suggest that this sometimes is and sometimes is not the case. It can be more or less true of us moment by moment, day by day. And I suspect the bewildering variety of variables factoring therein. You can imagine a soldier who's home from battle. At home, he's in an objective state of peace. But this is not so easy, subjectively speaking. The mystery of the soul, still haunted or variously plagued, may long prevent the soldier from realizing that the state of peace is true, such that he feels it in his soul. So we can close by asking, what works for or against our enjoyment of peace? We can give a number of answers to this. And if you read Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity, you'll find him detailing this. John Flavel as well has a rich set of meditations about what works for and what works against our peace. And I encourage you to take those up. We don't have time to go through all of them. I'll make just a couple of observations because we read Romans 15, 13. Hear it again. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So we're forced to say that in some sense, our enjoyment of peace is tied to faith. It's in believing that we have this joy and peace permeate, permeate our souls. And we can make a word of caution here, lest we say to a troubled soul, well, just, just believe more. Get yourself together and believe more. As if that's something we were capable of anyway. Okay, just give me a second. I'm going to work up some faith. That's my work up the faith face. We're not capable of working up faith. We can take more of God's word into our hearts. We can memorize more of God's word. We can set it before the gaze of our soul in meditation. But even when we've done all that we can, we are still utterly dependent upon the ministry of the spirit to generate spiritual realities, which is what faith is.
And yet at the same time, Paul says plainly, our enjoyment of peace is tied to the strength of our faith. James says it from another angle. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. It's a vivid picture of unrest, isn't it? We had some storms roll through here yesterday. Perhaps you've seen a storm on a sea and a little boat tossed backwards, forwards, this way, that. What's accounting for such unrest? He says it's doubt. It's this constant plague of wondering, well, maybe God didn't say. Maybe this or that promise isn't true. Maybe this or that commandment isn't true. We've been hearing it all this time in Psalm 119. Your word is true. Your commandments are true. They're true. They're true. They're true. And yet at the same time, he prays, Lord, let me see that they're true. Let me know that they're true. Let me follow them as if they are true. It is plain that it is doubt which wars against the enjoyment of peace. God has given us his word. He has given us his promises. He has given us his son. He has given us his spirit. He has withheld from us no good thing. Make no mistake, the frailest and the weakest faith in Jesus Christ justifies. The frailest and weakest faith in Jesus Christ enters a soul into this state of peace. But it is the growing faith which takes this peace more and more into the soul as its reigning and operating principle. So we accompany all of our reading of God's word, all of our hearing of God's word, all of our meditations upon God's word with the earnest prayer, increase my faith. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And he says the Spirit does. That's what the benediction says, right? So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The Spirit delights to distribute those gifts which Christ has purchased at the cost of his blood. He delights to press peace upon the soul that is right with God. That brings us to our next consideration. We say that our enjoyment of this peace is also connected to our ongoing confession of sin. That's what John writes in 1 John 1. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. It would be a grave mistake against the entire testimony of Scripture to conclude that because we are justified, because we have peace with God, we no longer repent of our sin. Scripture is plainly against such a foolish conclusion. Westminster Confession of Faith 11.5 explains clearly, God continues to forgive the sins of those who are justified. And then in Westminster Confession of Faith, 15.5, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. Make a finer point on it, why don't you? <laughs> endeavor to repent of particular sins particularly. 
we don't do a great job of this because we're Protestants, right? We shrink back from the confessional, the notion of the confessional. But there is a great blessing in confessing particular sins, particularly with the expectation of particular forgiveness, of particular cleansing of conscience from the Lord Jesus Christ. And our enjoyment of peace is bound up with this. And that's what we practice in our liturgy when we confess our sins. We come before the Lord in worship and we do acknowledge as thickly and as richly as possible our ongoing corruption, which is ever always the case. And in so doing, we are asking the Spirit to facilitate a richer understanding of the heinousness of sin so that we might come to a richer understanding of the inexpressible grace that has passed us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are also confessing specific sins that provision in the liturgy to bring particular sins before the Lord, to earnestly engage in a reflection upon the walk with Christ as it is unfolding, where ongoing failure may be hounding you, where particular indiscretions cause you to blush. It's in those moments where God says, I see it, lay it before me, for the provision that I've made is here set forth. Plainly, the fact of the state of justification and peace does not remove the need for seeking ongoing forgiveness. Rather, it establishes our confidence in seeking this forgiveness. You can imagine a wife coming to a husband and saying, forgive me, I'm a sinful wife. Or a husband coming to a wife saying, forgive me, I'm a sinful husband. Such is certainly true, but it's only partially helpful. In and of itself, it does very little to reestablish the enjoyment of the harmony of marriage, which was interrupted by an actual transgression, by an actual wrong. And thus it is the specific seeking of forgiveness, the particular sin repented of particularly, to use that thick language from Westminster 15. It's the specific seeking of forgiveness that serves to restore the fellowship. Forgive me, she says, I was terribly disrespectful when I said such and such. Forgive me, he says, I was terribly cruel when I did such and such. And the thicker and more particular the repentance, the thicker the restoration. And it's in a similar way that we bring those actual sins before the Lord. With an actual expectation of Christ's blood and the unique power it possesses to cleanse the conscience. What is there that, the, that can cleanse the conscience? What can remove the pollutions and the stains of a haunted conscience? It's only the blood of Christ. It is only the particular application by the Spirit of the Son's all-sufficient provision for sin to particularly 
particular sins that can cause a sinner to breathe easy in the wake of sin confessed and forgiveness enjoyed. So do not shrink back from an earnest searching of your hearts and lives. Temptation is to shrink back, isn't it? For the Spirit promises guidance in this endeavor. Do not shrink back from conviction over particular sin. For Christ died not for sin in the abstract, but for particular sins. Do not succumb to the devil's lies that somehow you are the only sinner in the congregation of the redeemed. And somehow you're the only one engaged in this. That's why we do the public confession. The corporate confession in part. We all take that prayer upon our lips as an audible confirmation that no one is alone in this. And any impression given to the contrary is a diabolical lie. Rather, it is with full confidence in the cleansing power of Christ's blood that we endeavor to make a thick acknowledgement of sin as swiftly as possible, and particularly as we prepare to draw near in worship, that we may all together bask in the enjoyment of the light of his fatherly countenance restored unto us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, let not your word fall void. You have promised that as the rains come down from heaven and water the earth and bring forth seed to the sower and bread to the one who labors, pray, Father, that your word would go forth in the way that you have promised that it will, accomplishing the very thing for which you purpose it. Extend to us that blessed ministry of the Spirit, which makes your word into life. For we are utterly dependent upon you for this. And we ask in Christ's name, amen.